today on Ag News Daily. I bought my former elementary school in Ridgeway and put tanks in there and that's when we got started in shrimp production. Good afternoon ladies and gentlemen and a happy Friday to all of our listeners. Mike Pearson here joined of course by Delaney Howe and Delaney we're back from the A&D road trip. How's it feel? Uh, I feel a little sick today, I'm not going to lie. I feel like I'm getting a cold, Mike. Oh, gosh, we can't take you anywhere, Delaney. Jeez. I know. And I'm going to Ireland tomorrow, so it's just more travel on my plate. Not that I'm yeah, complaining. And, well, exactly. And so that's the thing. You're going to Ireland. We haven't talked about it very much. You're heading over there for the National Plowing Championships, which yeah. is... More than it sounds like, right? You're going to be getting more than just watching uh, watching the, the soil turn black. Right. Yeah, it's kind of, it sounds very similar to the Farm Progress show, but it's going to be in Ireland. They have it every year. I think this is like, it's close to or right around 100th year that they've been having this deal. Um, there's going to be about 100,000 guests, over 1,700 exhibits. And, of course, plowing demonstrations. So it'll be a pretty cool event. Absolutely. And so we can expect to get some updates from you yes. next week from Ireland, from the yeah, Emerald Isle. That's right. I won't be probably on the podcast with you because of the time difference, but I'll be sending you some uh, reports about some of the interesting stuff and interesting interviews I'm gathering. Fantastic. Before we let you get taken off to Ireland and possibly get abducted by a leprechaun. No, stop it. I, you know, that's a fear. Those guys, they're crafty. Yeah, I guess so. Leprechauns, you know, they got to hide their gold. Behind the rainbow. Well, right. That's why you got to eat them in their, uh, while they're in their Lucky Charms box. <laughs> Anyhow, Delaney, what's their news today? Well, Mike, we have more outbreaks of the African swine fever, and this time they're not in China. We've had some, yeah, we've had a couple of cases confirmed by Belgian authorities. I believe it's right on the French-Belgian border, Um, but a lot of those European countries are top pork exporters, and I think the EU is maybe the number one pork exporter in the entire world. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, I think so. I read that somewhere this morning, maybe. Huh. Well, maybe on a per capita basis or right. something. Yeah, I don't know. But uh, if you look at pork, the pork industry right now, I don't know. I mean, long term, we could see some support in the hog industry because we've got uh, the Hurricane Florence hitting the North Carolina shores today, I believe. Yeah. Um, and then we've got now another case confirmed by Belgian authorities, which uh, is moving into Western Europe. They've only identified two wild boars carrying the the disease, but we're still seeing outbreaks all across China. Oh, boy. Well, you know, it, it should be supportive as long as it doesn't break here. You know, then right. we're going to see the see the hog market certainly take a hit. But, Delaney, as you mentioned, yes, Hurricane Florence has made landfall. That storm is moving inland through North Carolina so far today. The uh, surge, basically the wall of water pushed ahead by the hurricane, has already overwhelmed the town of New Bern. So it's about 30,000 people kind of on the northern coastline of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. And the the good news is, the wind isn't as bad as people were thinking two or three days ago. The the winds have slowed down a little bit. The downside is the entire storm has slowed down and expanded. So it's now this giant 
slow moving, you know, kind of wall of rain that's going to fall over North and South Carolina and parts of Virginia for the next several days. And they're mm-hmm. still talking potentially 40 inches of rain in places. Yes. So, yeah, I mean, this is definitely going to have an impact on agriculture. We'll see how far the storm gets and how severe it continues to dump this rain before we know exactly you know, what the impacts are for ag. Yeah, that's interesting, too, because I was um, talking to some Irish guys. I'm meeting up with a couple of people to shoot some video while I'm in Ireland next week. And they said, make sure and bring rain boots or some sort of like muddy boots, because they are also expected to get some of the discharge from Hurricane Florence. In Ireland? Yeah. Huh. Weird. Maybe it's disrupting weather patterns across the Atlantic, I suppose. Yeah. Interesting. Well, actually, Delaney, just to kind of tie right onto that, so the southeastern corner of the United States is getting an overabundance of rain at a time they don't really want it. Well, in Brazil, the the world's largest sugarcane plant uh, typically processes about 10 million tons of, you know, metric tons of sugar per year. And now they're saying that for the second season in a row, they're going to see that number drop off. And basically, it's the the dryness that is continuing in Sao Paulo state in the center south region of Brazil. It's it's where most of the sugar cane is grown, but it has been under this. Um, yeah, it's not quite a drought. I guess it is. It, it's a whatever category one would be in the U.S. Mm-hmm. on the drought monitor. You know, it's exceptionally dry. Right. And uh, second year now that they've suffered that. So maybe this will open up some opportunities for more U.S. ethanol to roll down into Brazil, but we'll see. Don't want to get our yeah. get out over the skis. Well, I think it's going to be interesting this year to see how many acres or if any acres switch from uh, corn from corn to soybeans. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, you mean from soybeans? Oh, you know, in Brazil, I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You. In Brazil, I smell what you're stepping into, Lenny. Yeah. Well, let's see, Mike. Got a little bit of news about the 2019 aid package from Secretary Sonny Perdue. He sat down in a one-on-one interview with AgriPulse over the week this week, and he is saying that farmers should not expect a second round of trade assistance payments next year unless Congress decides to do the package on its own. He said that farmers need to make their own marketing and planting decisions based on market signals and not on the expectation of more aid from the USDA. Um, And he said that this year, basically the payments were justified because farmers couldn't anticipate the market impact of the trade dispute, but next year that is not going to be the case. And he even suggested, went as far as suggesting that farmers should plant fewer acres of soybeans this year. Absolutely. You know, we had that conversation several times with Ted Seifert over the week. Mm-hmm. You know, we've got to do what the market is telling us. And so long as these tariffs and this trade war is in place, the market's telling us to uh, to quit planting so dang right. many soybeans. That's lately. right. And to build on that, speaking of the trade war, President Trump went ahead today and told aides to go ahead and proceed with tariffs on $200 billion more billion worth of Chinese products. Now, Trump telling his aides to proceed does not mean the tariffs are in place. We don't yet know the time as to when they're going to actually have a plan and have a targeted list of, of which products are going to get those tariffs. But they are moving ahead. The intention today is to put them in place at some point in the future. 
I would imagine he's going to do it fairly quick, so maybe he can get some, yeah, I don't know, some uh, political benefit from it before the midterms, I would think. Yeah, I would think so, too. Interesting. Yeah. I do have one other interesting piece of news about these uh, tariffs. Mm-hmm. So part of the reason we're putting these tariffs in place is to lower the trade deficit with China, right? Basically to uh, make sure we import less from China so that uh, I, I guess we're importing less, right? Right. Well, since we've started this trade war, imports from China are up hmm. 9% on that the year. That seems a little ironic. So, yeah, and and I've talked to a couple of folks. Some people believe that, well, importers are going ahead. They're trying to import a bunch of extra stuff in case this trade war goes on, which certainly seems to make some sense. Yeah. They're stockpiling or front-running the tariffs. Hmm. Okay, but I still, mean, I guess. Not having the intended uh, yeah. uh, effect. Definitely not. Not at all. No, but what else has got... You got any good news for us, Delaney? Uh... I, I guess. Okay. Hey, that's the uh, most positive we've heard so far. Kind of optimistic. Kind of. Uh, yeah. Okay. I'll do my best to present it in a positive light. But House and hey, Senate negotiators. Yeah. House and Senate negotiators are not only debating the farm bill, but they're also. I think they've reached an agreement on certain spending levels for fiscal year 2019, including spending levels for the USDA and the FDA, which go into effect October 1st. The final details haven't been released yet, but negotiators say that they're going to provide an additional $550 million for rural broadband development, which will also go along with the $600 million that Congress previously allocated this spring. So we're going to see, geez, just right at right over a bill a billion dollars going towards improving rural broadband and rural internet access so i'm kind of excited about that um yeah i'll be excited when they actually lay fiber to my house yeah that's when i'll get fired up might be a little while but uh some of the other points that they're still arguing about or having disagreements about are including um which agencies should regulate sell derived meat or cultured meat products and also i didn't know this one was up for debate but apparently the ban on horse slaughter also has not been settled yet senate negotiators are keeping to push or are pushing to keep the ban in place but apparently others are not interesting listeners horse slaughter is a hot topic and people feel very passionate one way or the other if you've got an opinion on horse slaughter find us on twitter are you supportive of reallowing horse slaughter in the U.S., or do you think we need to keep it banned? Find us at Ag News Daily, both on Facebook and Twitter. And Delaney, I think maybe we ought to put a poll out there and, and see what the uh, the Internet tells us. What are your thoughts on horse slaughter? I am pro-horse slaughter. Yeah, so We've got to have a humane way to end the lives of these animals mm-hmm. that isn't just slowly letting them starve to death on an overpopulated range or have owners that can no longer sell them because they're, we've taken the floor away from the, the horse market. And there are places where people just turn horses loose and then they're out competing for feed with other animals. They're you know catching diseases. And that's a much more painful end than a humane and uh, quick slaughter. And then, you know, they've still got usable, I hate to say this word, parts All right. that, you know, we can use for uh, for pet food and uh, glue and, you know, so yeah. forth. There's a lot of value in a horse, and it's a shame that we're mm-hmm. 
they, they just go to waste. I um uh, during high school, I'm trying to think. One of the FFA, they have like the competitions. You know, I can't think of what event it was, but basically, you put together a team and you come up with you each get a different role. So I think one of us was like a USDA inspector, another one of us was like a concerned citizen, one of us was maybe like a horse. Farmer, I don't know. I don't remember the specific roles, but that was one of that was the issue that we chose to discuss. You basically have like a town hall or a forum meeting, and you all get to discuss your points about why you think that this should or shouldn't happen. Kind of like a school board or a town hall meeting, kind of a deal. But that was the issue that we picked to talk about that year. I think it was my I don't know what year it was, maybe 2010, 2009. So it was definitely kind of a hot issue then, talking about horse ban and horse slaughtering. So I feel like I'm not an expert on it by any means, but I spent a lot of time looking into that. Yeah. So where'd you fall on it? Are you pro or con? I'm definitely pro harvest. Yeah. Pro horse yeah. harvest. I just, but yeah. For very if you disagree with us, let us know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, there there is no horse market, Delaney. No, uh, as you not. mentioned, there there is no horse slaughter. But we do have the other markets and some good news for cattle producers today. What do you say? Should we jump into it, or do you have more news? Let's do it, Mike. All right, folks. And as always, our markets are brought to us by our great friends at the Zaner Group. Remember, you can get in touch with Ted Seifert, get his thoughts, and get his assistance on managing a marketing plan by calling them at 312-277-0050 or on the web at Zaner, Z-A-N-E-R dot com and tell them you heard it on Ag News Daily. Well, it was an interesting week for the grain markets. Let's see how we rounded out the week in the corn market. September contract up three quarters of a cent at 337 even. December up one and a quarter to close the day at 351 and three quarters. In soybeans, the SEP contract was down one and a quarter at 821 and a half. November new crop down two and three quarters. Closed the week at 830 and a half. Chicago wheat finished on a strong note today. The September contract up eight and a quarter cents at 480 even. The December up 14 and a half to close at 511 and a half. Jumping over to the livestock side, hey, we've got some green on the screen today. In fact, a little bit better than that. In October, live cattle, we're limit up. $3 daily trading limit closed at 113.80. December up 265 to finish at 118.05. And in feeder cattle, the September contract up 247.50, finished at 157.42.5. The October up 347.50, closed at 58.87.5. And in lean hogs, a little bit of strength to finish out the week. The October contract up 55 cents at 56.22.50. The December up 72.5 to close at 56.65. And of course, we've got to check on our friends in the dairy market. September class 3 milk down 2 cents at 16.11. October up 14 today to finish the week at 16.24. Now let's have a conversation with one of our stops during the week. That's with Mr. Jeff Ryan, known as Guy Number 2 at Two Guys Farming Incorporated. Well, we are here in northeast Iowa, outside the town of Cresco. We are talking to Jeff Ryan of Two Guys Farming Operations. Jeff is Guy Number 2. We're very excited to talk to him. Jeff, thanks for taking the time to show us around up here. Glad to be here. Thanks for coming. Now, let's let's talk a little bit about your operation right off the bat. You are cattle, corn, soybeans, and hay. Is that right? Correct. Mostly corn, and we have a cow-calf herd finish out our own calves. And Jeff, tell us a little bit about the history of that farm. Are you guys a multi-generation farm? How did you get into farming? My folks started in 1958, I think it was, and so they both came from farm backgrounds and had rented a place for a long time before that and then just bought their own farm and have slowly expanded over the years ever since. 
Now, let's talk about your cattle herd, because the, you guys have been pretty forward-looking throughout the years. Tell us what you do and uh, what that operation looked like and the, the lifestyle that those calves have and then where they end up. Part of the, the thing that has been a strong suit in northeast Iowa especially is a dairy background. We came from a dairy background. We used to milk cows, so the natural inclination was to look at the numbers that you get with dairy production and just fit those numbers right into beef production. So AI was common in the dairy industry. We use that in our commercial cattle. Um, any kind of uh, production data, it's, it's always great to drive numbers for decisions. Tell us then about some of the data that you're looking at year to year with your cow-calf herd. We randomly mate the cows using artificial insemination and then take those calves, feed them out to finish weight and collect carcass data on those calves and get it back to the bull owner so that they can know what kind of carcasses those bulls provide. And what does that do for your, for your herd in particular? For me, it's, it's enabled us to see what the power of data does and especially with individual carcass data, uh, we can see the tremendous differences between sires and know which ones do things great and which ones have some weak points in them. And Jeff, so you've been working on this program. You've been really heavy into data since the early 80s. As you look out, we're in 2018. Data tools have exploded here in the past few years. What are you excited about the potential of measuring looking forward? What would you love to know that you just don't have the tools to do today? Right now, I have not done any DNA genotyping on my herd, and I think that's probably the next big step to unlock some of the potential that's out there. Find out who really is at the top 1% of the industry or even the top 1% of your herd. When you are working with your herd, what happens to them? What happens to those bull calves or uh, steer calves? What do you do with those? Are you repopulating those or raising those bulls to, um, to breed your cattle, or are you sending those off to market? The vast majority of those male calves will go on feed and go to a harvest plant and get data collected. We do keep one or two uh, bull calves intact and use those for cleanup following artificial insemination. Now, Jeff, up here, we are in northeast Iowa. This is beautiful countryside. We're right outside the Driftless region, or Driftless, or possibly in it. Now we're standing in Calamus, Iowa. Um, tell us a little bit about how this year has gone for you. I mean, it was, it's been wet in a lot of different places. What's it been like up here? The winter dragged on forever. We still had snow a couple times in April, and then since the 1st of May, the uh, weather reporting station at Cresco has recorded 35.4 inches of rain between May 1st and September 6th, which is roughly a year's worth of precipitation in four months, five months. How is that precipitation affecting this year's crop? We've got a lot of holes out in the field where we're not sure what to expect on, on yield. We don't know if some of these wet spots are going to be zero bushels an acre. Are they going to be 20 or 100, 150? So it's, it's going to be a, a tremendous crapshoot until you get out in the combine and see what the monitor tells you for those weak points. And hopefully those weak points aren't going to be huge. Yeah. And you mentioned getting out in the combine. We're talking here on the 10th, 11th, 13th, 12th whatever, early September. Jeff, how far are you from running the combine through the field up here? I think we're probably still at least three weeks away from getting started. Usually we'll start somewhere in the 20s of September or so. This year I don't think we got enough planted early and haven't really had any, any uh, severe drought to speed things up throughout the summer, so we should be probably on schedule for more of an October harvest. And you're doing corn on corn up here. Why, why not do soybeans in this part of the woods, or why did you decide not to do soybeans? 
A lot of it for us depends on the lay of the land. And just from a soil conservation standpoint, we've either got to go no-till to use soybeans. Uh, soybeans in wide rows are usually a little bit better for white mold issues. And we've just never been that impressed with no-till soybeans up here. So the corn-on-corn corn program that we've used has worked well enough to make us not want to change. Yeah. Now, Jeff, again, looking out into 2019, we've been talking trade. It seems like in every industry, of course, it's hit soybeans, most of all, which you've luckily dodged, and hogs, which you've also dodged. But now cattle are being brought into this. Maybe we're talking trade war with Japan. We saw the USDA report out today. This corn crop looks huge. Corn's down. What are your thoughts for next year? I mean, is there anything that the market would do to make you change the way you run your operation? Right now, I'm not sure what it would take to make us look at a, at a significant change in acreage or the crop mix, I guess, as far as that goes. The other thing up here in northeast Iowa is we still have a fairly strong dairy industry, so we do have the advantage of maybe increasing hay acres to take advantage of those dairy uh, options for a market. But you don't just suddenly go out and decide, hey, I'm going to put 5,000 acres of hay in. You know, it's a small, small change that most people can make at a time. Let's talk a little bit about your hay operation. Walk me through what you're growing, how much of it you're growing, or what you're using it for. We've got a combination, a few acres of gr uh, straight grass hay that's kind of a combination of uh, bluegrass and timothy. We've got some that's alfalfa brome. We've got a young dairyman uh, nearby who buys a lot of our alfalfa standing, and then he chops it for silage. So that's worked well for us. Uh, we've always had the Fort Atkinson hay auction nearby, so that's been a really strong market for for any kind of good hay to get rid of without having to load it on trucks and send it 500 miles away. Jeff, I also want to ask because you told us a, a, an interesting story earlier about um, raising hay for tortoises or turtles. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about that story? I had one guy who called and was looking for some Timothy hay and when I called him back he said he uses it primarily for pet food and it was News to me that the tortoise industry, the tortoise population, loves Timothy hay. And so he was using that, that hay in a couple different products. One was a pet food that looked similar to Jello Jigglers. He liked bright colors. Some of it would be bright yellow, bright orange, bright red. And I think it was about 85% of that product was Timothy hay that he was using. It's crazy. I mean, that's just insane to think about hay in a jello form I, I just i have a hard time picturing it and i wonder jeff did you bring any back of those jigglers to feed the steers see if maybe we can get an increase in consumption with bright colored jello hay i didn't do that but now that i think about it i, I may go on a trip here later today and, and find that guy and see if i can get some it'd be worth maybe iowa state would be interested in doing a feeding trial with me well yeah speaking of iowa state you also do a lot of um farm research or you work with a lot of universities or colleges to do some on the farm research walk me through some of that we've done a couple different grazing studies with iowa state with uh, jim russell and some of that was on stream bank stabilization so they were looking for operations that used uh, continuous grazing, rotational grazing, uh, and so we had one area of the pasture that worked out well that fit into all three. A uh, neighbor nearby uh, did not have any livestock, so they could use his water as a sample of uh, uh, no livestock input. We rotationally grazed the next one downstream, so we could see what the different levels were in that system, and then the next pasture downstream for me was continuous grazing. So in a relatively short area, 100, 200 yards, we could set up 
three different trials for them, and they could get all of their data collected at three spots instead of having to find three different areas to go to. Yeah. It, Jeff, you mentioned rotational grazing. That's That's been a really hot topic in the beef industry here since the drought of 2012, especially. How long have you been operating it there at uh, the Ryan Farm? I think I started probably the most aggressive in about 1991 or 1992. I learned a lot about it at Iowa State at the beef teaching farm when Marshall Rubel was the uh, uh, coordinator and manager of that farm, and, and he taught us a lot in classes. I graduated in 1990 from Iowa State, and so I learned a lot from Marshall in those years when I was there. Mm-hmm. And it just seems to work well up in your part of the world. I mean, the ability to utilize smaller pastures more efficiently, is that kind of what drew you to it? It is, and a lot of it was the flexibility you can use in different fence types. Because when people think about putting up fence, they think steel posts, barbed wire, all kinds of labor. And some of these uh, polywire products and other, other fiberglass posts make it quick and easy to do. And Jeff, I've got to ask, we look up here in northeast Iowa, we see row crops, we see cattle, a little bit of live, or a little bit of hogs, not a lot of shrimp farming. Um, but you uh, recently sold out of that business. How did you get into it in the first place? My wife was looking at uh, a couple different articles about it, and so that's how how we got got started in it to begin with. I bought my former elementary school in Ridgeway and put tanks in there, and that's when we got started in shrimp production. And how, how obviously you sold out of the business now, but how were you doing? Was it a viable business for this part of Iowa? It varies. There's a lot of different pieces that go into the puzzle for that. So when we look at the availability of young shrimp, we look at uh, experts to help for advice. Iowa didn't quite have everything that other areas do. Yeah, it's one of those things where you're looking at adding value to the, the environment we have here, the buildings we have here, the, the all the advantages we have in the heartland, but we're just not quite there yet, it sounds like. We've got a, a little bit of a learning curve before we can really be competitive aquaculturally. And, and we do have a tremendous amount of support from the public for those, for those enterprises because you're selling direct to people. They want to know more about their food. They want to know their producer. And this is a product that they can't get anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, that's true. Most, most of them don't have the option of fresh seafood anywhere. No, especially out in Iowa. No. You, if it says fresh, you got to double check. Uh-huh. That, that ain't coming from next door. Uh-huh. Well, Jeff, we certainly appreciate touring your farm today and appreciate you taking the time to uh, tell our listeners a little bit about your farm. Thank you for coming. I had a great time while you were here. Well, very interesting operation. We got to see cool farm, cool guy that Jeff Ryan is for sure, Mike. Absolutely. Absolutely. And Delaney, we went to the uh, the dairy farm, of course, yes. that's where we interviewed Jeff. How did you get there? Oh, that's right. I drove, well, okay, I think it was like an old beetle, but it's like, a convertible beetle. I don't know. You took a picture of it's it. It's a dune buggy. Yeah, kind of. No, it is. That's that's what Jeff drives. He's got a road legal dune buggy. But I said it was a beetle. Well, so yeah, I think it's a beetle frame with oh, the dune buggy, okay. you know, uh, right. thing on it. But yeah, yeah, it's a beetle engine, I think. It was cool. It was fun. I didn't anticipate my hair to literally whip all around, but it was a fun ride. Absolutely. So, Jeff... Thanks for taking the time to uh, show us your operation. Walk us around Northeast Iowa. Listeners, stay tuned. We've got a bunch of other great conversations from our tour. We'll be bringing those to you next week, getting caught up on how ag looks across the heart of the Corn Belt. And with that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. 